Computer, initialize Holosuite. Hi everyone, this is the Sci-Fi Feminist dropping out of warp to bring you another exciting episode on feminism and popular culture. Today's episode will form part one of a mini-series on second wave feminism and pop culture. So I hope you really enjoy it and that you find this really insightful. I will first briefly look at some of the earliest representation of women in sci-fi and then I will look at three of my favorite female characters in sci-fi, which is Ellen Ripley from the Alien franchise, Sarah Connor from Terminator, and Captain Catherine Janeway from Star Trek Voyager. I will also discuss a little bit of second wave feminism, but all of this is an introduction to the episodes that follow later that will be a much more detailed discussion of each of these characters and of each of the different facets of second wave feminism. So I hope you really enjoy it and please feel free to let me know if there's anything specific you would like me to cover and if you have any feedback I'm pretty new to this podcast thing so please bear with me and um, please feel free to let me know what you think or what you would like to hear more of. All right, so let's get right into today's discussion. So in the West, by which I mean America and Europe, two major events reignited feminism after a few decades of dormancy following the first wave of feminism. And in retrospect, this was named the second wave of feminism. So the two events are the founding of the National Organization for Women in 1996, as well as the women's liberation movement in America in the 1960s. Uh, recently, I watched a really interesting show on uh, second wave feminism. It was called Mrs. America, starring one of my favorite actresses, Kate Blanchett. If you would like to know more about second wave feminism, I highly recommend that series. Um, I didn't understand a lot of the political mumbo jumbo, but you can kind of get the gist of it. And I think it was very informative and Kate Blanchett is just amazing. So um, please watch it if you would like some more on the second wave of feminism. So some academic texts that were also published during the second wave of feminism, they started to interrogate the representation of women in popular culture. So two of the most famous ones is definitely Laura Mulvey's essay on visual pleasure and narrative cinema, which became one of the fundamental feminist texts regarding representation and women in cinema. And the second essay was by Claire Johnston, titled Women's Cinema as Counter Cinema. Johnston's essay especially started to criticize the types of sexualized representations of women that we see on screen. One really good example being Princess Leia's slave outfit that she wears in Star Wars Return of the Jedi. So in the 1960s, representations of women on screen, and especially within science fiction, were largely limited to either sexualized villains, and in some instances heroines, such as Barbarella, for example. Um, if you've seen that movie, it's pretty weird, and it features Jane Fonda, as this very sexualized uh, sci-fi heroine. Uh, do yourself a favor if you haven't watched that movie, um, it's pretty funny. Okay, and then other representations of women on screen were also the passive damsels in distress, which is an age-old trope 
that um, Anita Sarkeesian has also addressed in her video series on tropes versus women in video games. So um, if you would like to learn more about the passive damsel in distress trope, especially I highly recommend the Feminist Frequency YouTube channel and their discussion of these types of tropes in video games. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, however, heroines that are different from the sexualized and passive women from the 1960s started appearing on screen. Now, second wave feminist concerns over the representation of women in the media may not have been the only role player in the advent of these different and more subversive sci-fi heroines, but I definitely think that an overall increasing awareness of problematic representations of women in film without a doubt influenced these new heroines' representation. So three prominent heroines that reflect an increasing awareness of women's sexualization and lack of representation as main protagonists in film and who are the focus of this mini-series are Ellen Ripley from the Alien franchise, Sarah Connor from the Terminator film series and Captain Catherine Janeway from Star Trek Voyager. Now I chose to focus on these three characters specifically, first of all because I think they're the best and they are my three favorite women in sci-fi, and also because Ellen Ripley and Sarah Connor were the earliest examples of women whose representation broke the dominant tropes of femininity in sci-fi, and Captain Janeway as well because she was the first female captain in the Star Trek franchise that has been going since 1996 which is really quite significant. Other female heroines that are quite similar to these three that I've mentioned, but that I won't be discussing in this series yet, are Dana Scully from The X-Files and also Clarice Starling from, from the film adaptations of Hannibal. So if you watch uh, The X-Files and Hannibal, you'll see that all the things I discussed here will also apply to those two characters. But who was the first ever woman in science fiction? Okay, so I've traced it back to the movie Metropolis, which was released in 1927. This is a pretty weird movie, but it's also really cool because it's in black and white and all the props are handmade, as well as all the special effects. And it's a silent movie and all the other subtitles are in German. So I didn't really understand what was going on in the movie. And the Wikipedia synopsis um, is kind of vague or maybe I just didn't read it properly. But um, that is a really cool movie. And Metropolis featured not only the first female cyborg in sci-fi, but it was also considered the first full-length sci-fi movie ever made. There is this really fun Star Trek Voyager episode as well called Bride of Chaotica. I think it is in season five of Voyager that kind of parodies this black and white early sci-fi films uh, of the 1930s, 1950s. So if you would like to watch a really fun Voyager episode that harks back at this earliest sci-fi movies, uh, watch Bride of Chaotica. Okay, so the female cyborg in Metropolis is called Maria 
And according to this one theorist named Andreas Huysen, I hope I said his surname correctly, Maria appears as a projection of the male gaze that perpetuates the myth of the dualistic nature of women as either a sexual virgin mother or prostitute vamp. So women in sci-fi that came after Maria were in fact, for the most part of the 20th century, similar to her, either portrayed as oversexed or undersexed aliens or as human secretaries and assistants. So some of the most notable female characters in sci-fi include Princess Leia and Padme from Star Wars, who were often sexualized despite their statuses as empowered women within the films, like I explained about Princess Leia's slave outfit. Um, although I can definitely say one thing, that recently this has changed a lot for women in Star Wars, but maybe I will talk about that later. They were accompanied by other heroines in sci-fi film and television, such as Barbarella, which I also mentioned earlier, Perry Brown from Doctor Who, Cassiopeia from Battlestar Galactica, Galactica? <laughs> what a tongue twister, Diana from V, Pris from Blade Runner, and many women throughout the various Star Trek series, such as Lieutenant Uhura, who I also mentioned in the previous episode, Counselor Diana Troy, Jadzia Dax and Droxine, to name only a few. They were not only sexualized, but they were also often oppressed by the other male characters in the shows. For example, it became convention that a female guest star would be introduced as Spectacle in almost every Star Trek original series episode in order to reinforce Captain Kirk's phallic authority and masculinity with her womanhood and femininity. She would also act as a romantic interest for Kirk that distracts him from his mission in most instances. We also saw the same thing taking place in comic books, which grew in popularity throughout the 20th century. In comic books, women were not only treated as sex objects, but they were predominantly represented as dependent on male heroes or in relation to them. For example, Louis Lane, despite being a tough and self-sufficient career woman, constantly needs to be rescued by Superman, which in the end reduces her to just another damsel in distress. In the same way, Supergirl, who was initially introduced as Superman's cousin in 1959, often needs Superman's assistance, despite possessing many superpowers of her own. Images of shapely heroines, who often found themselves in risque situations where their figures were particularly highlighted, such as the early versions of Tank Girl, The Invisible Woman, Catwoman, She-Hulk, Black Widow, Black Canary, Jean Grey, Batwoman, and an abundance of others, pervade popular comics produced throughout the 20th century. In less mainstream sci-fi and horror comics such as Weird Science, Ghost Comics, Mr. Mystery, Heavy Metal, and a bunch of others, images of sexualized machine women or cyborgs and scantily clad damsels in distress are commonplace. Even Wonder Woman, who is often cited as a feminist icon, is highly ambivalent in her representation. 
Wonder Woman's creator, William Marston, aimed to portray a woman in a strong heroic light through creating the character in 1945, and in some ways he was successful. Wonder Woman does not fit the damsel in distress trope she seen in the likes of Lewis Lane, and canon stipulates that she was created from clay by her mother, which eliminates her dependence on males. And um, I was quite sad to see in the Wonder Woman movie in 2017 that that narrative arc was replaced and in the movie she's actually the biological daughter of Zeus, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so that really took away that earliest narrative of Wonder Woman and for me that really takes away a lot of her uh, progressive and subversive um, status. Anyway, Wonder Woman, like most heroines in sci-fi, she also wears a costume that draws attention to her shapely body, and she still does that in 2017 and in the latest movie, was it released last year, and she's often put in situations with sexual undertones, perhaps not so much in the recent movies, but definitely in the Wonder Woman comics. So in some of the comics, you will see Wonder Woman wearing her revealing One Piece outfit and then she often gets tied up with her own golden lasso which alludes to themes of bondage and motives of sexual control which was often found in the Wonder Woman comics. I watched a really interesting movie on Wonder Woman, um, on the creator of Wonder Woman. The movie is called Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman and you can kind of see uh, where the character comes from and I highly recommend that movie as well. It's a bit explicit because he had two wives, um, but it was quite interesting. If you would like to know more about Wonder Woman, there's a lot of reading on her. She's a very big character and she's almost a decade old now. So yeah, uh, if you want to watch that movie. So these representations of women in comic books also influence the representation in film and vice versa. For example, the Wonder Woman television series, which aired between 1975 and 1979, also featured the big busted and thin-waisted Linda Carter in Wonder Woman's iconic red and blue costume seen in the comics, and also Gal Gadot from the most recent Wonder Woman movies also wears that same outfit that we see in all the other Wonder Woman comics. But despite all the sexualization and objectification of women in sci-fi, a theorist called Sherry Innes argues that despite its history of objectifying women, the sci-fi genre is also unique in its ability to explore progressive ideas regarding women, gender and race while still being widely accepted by contemporary audiences. Because sci-fi texts are generally set in hypothetical futures where current taboos seemingly no longer exist. A really good example of this is the first interracial kiss that took place on primetime television between Lieutenant Uhura and Captain Kirk in Star Trek the original series. So since women are traditionally associated with the material, with nature, 
and by extension the earth, and men with the assumed binaries of these, such as science, culture, and space, conceptions of women in outer space provides a theoretical and historical problem because this questions and dissolves the supposed binaries of man and woman, earth and outer space, and private and public. Now, all of this stuff regarding gender, I will also cover in a later episode. But for now, I hope this is sufficient um, for you to understand what I'm talking about. So it's therefore not surprising that these really subversive heroines like Ellen Ripley, Sarah Connor and Catherine Janeway that question these assumed binaries actually emerged from the sci-fi genre. Ellen Ripley was undoubtedly the first significant sci-fi heroine whose representation departed from decades of the above-mentioned female tropes in sci-fi and she still continues to have a really powerful influence today. If you're unaware, she's played by Sigourney Weaver, who also played in a bunch of other great movies like Avatar, the three other alien movies, and Ghostbusters, just to name a few. Because of her legacy, she's also informally known as the sci-fi queen, which I totally agree she is. So perhaps due to the success of Alien and Aliens, similar of these types of really strong women appeared in cinema and on screen, some of which are Sarah Connor, Catherine Janeway, as well as Dana Scully from The X-Files and Clarice Starling from Silence of the Lambs, like I mentioned earlier. The appearance of more action or sci-fi heroines that are like Ripley desexualized, the main protagonists of their respective narratives, and that are also able to do everything that the male heroes can do, therefore prompt the questions such as what makes a heroine different from a hero? And uh, this is something I would like to briefly explore in this episode. What makes a female hero different from a male hero? Because many people have argued that these women, these uh, sci-fi heroines like Ripley, Connor and Janeway, that can do everything that the male heroes can do, are then simply male heroes in female bodies. So shouldn't they be different exactly because of their sex or gender, because they are women, or should they be the same as male heroes? This comes down to this age-old debate in feminism about sexual difference and sexual sameness. Should women be the same as men and therefore liberated, or should women be liberated because they are different from men? Now, I will explore this question in a much later episode, but I would briefly like to give my take on heroism, and especially female heroism, and how to kind of negotiate this issue of sexual difference and sexual sameness as a female hero. You would have noticed that I used the term heroine instead of female hero throughout the discussion, and I think in the previous episode as well, because for me there is a semantic difference between the terms female hero and heroine. So the term female hero may refer to a woman who does everything that is associated with male heroism, but is in a female body, 
where the term heroine for me connotes a specific female version of heroism that does not have a set definition and is content constantly being debated among scholars. So most people use these terms interchangeably, but I prefer to refer to the term heroine because of the reasons that I will quickly explain now. Um, I'm also aware that the categories of male and female are not fixed and that there are of course non-binary individuals, transgender individuals, but I will deal with all of this in the episodes to follow. So please uh, bear with me as I use these binary categorizations because it just makes it easier to explain all these things about female heroism. Okay, so there are two, these two theorists that wrote an article about the latest version of Lara Croft, which I will also talk about in a later episode. There are Haewon Han and Sejin Song from South Korea. And they criticized the new version of Lara Croft for displaying all the characteristics typical of a male hero and failing to provide a model for what a female hero, or in my term, a heroine is. So this poses a dilemma because some may argue that a heroine should not be different from a male hero because this perpetuates their gender difference. And some, such as these two theorists, further, further argue that a heroine simply following a male hero model narrative and possessing his characteristics reinforces a patriarchal system. In fact, for Han and Song, a true heroine in popular culture is yet to emerge. Now, I don't think there is anything as a true heroine that is a really essentialist uh, project and endeavor. But I will explain in this mini-series to follow that a distinctive heroine, which is a female hero that is different from the male hero, can be found in sci-fi film produced between the 1970s and the 1990s. And this archetype or this heroine that I will identify is embodied by characters like Ellen Ripley, Sarah Connor and Catherine Janeway. So for me, a heroine embodies qualities traditionally associated with masculinity and with femininity. And this is what distinguishes a heroine from the archetypal male hero. Instead of her female qualities causing her to develop a dual identity where she identifies with male characteristics while also descending into negative female tropes such as the damsel in distress, which is what Han and Song argue about the new version of Lara Croft, I will show in this mini-series that the heroine's feminine qualities empower her. In an analysis of Ellen Ripley, for example, a theorist named Judith Newton says that Ripley's character appropriates qualities traditionally identified with male but not masculinist heroes, while simultaneously being reinvested with traditionally feminine qualities. So although some say that Ripley's feminine qualities perpetuates gender difference, I agree with another theorist called Elizabeth Graham that this characterization, her femininity, 
in combination with her masculinity is what makes Ripley an autonomous character that does not fit the false dichotomy of masculine versus feminine. And the same is true for Sarah Connor and especially Captain Catherine Janeway. So many people have tried to uh, term this heroine archetype that Ellen Ripley represents. Jeffrey Brown, for example, says that this is the modern action heroine, although it must have been modern in the 1980s, but not anymore. Um, so I don't refer to this archetype as the modern action heroine, but rather as what another theorist called Gladys Knight terms the second wave power woman. So what I will aim to show for the rest of this mini-series is that the second wave power woman, embodied by Ellen Ripley, Sarah Connor and Catherine Janeway, presents a complex heroine archetype that should not be disregarded as simply being a male hero in a woman's body. So I really hope that this short introductory episode on second wave feminism and popular culture and what a real heroine is has sparked your curiosity. In the following few episodes of this mini-series, I will be focusing on these three action heroines and I will also look at three distinct schools of second wave feminism which are early liberal feminism radical feminism and cultural feminism so i hope you look forward to the mini series as much as i am and please give me feedback please let me know if there's anything you want me to discuss in particular and i will be happy to incorporate your feedback and your criticism and all of the things that you would like to hear in this podcast so yes, this is the Sci-Fi Feminist signing off. Live long and prosper until next week. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Sweet Media programs. Loading Sweet Preview Program 4, Her First Trek, a Star Trek preview podcast. I don't know what Picard is doing between the Stargazer and the Enterprise D. So how do you go from abandoning a ship to getting given the flagship? But <laughs> ten years passes. <laughs> yeah, he lost the other one. So but here's a really special one. And here's the best part: we're going to put families and children on it. Yeah, because <laughs> we know that you're so good at taking care of starships. Yeah. I don't know how he got the ship and what was he doing in the time in between. I don't think he had another command before the Enterprise D. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure someone will let me know. We have quite a few TNG fans who listen to the show actually so maybe they'll tell me but no spoilers guys no spoilers loading holosuite preview program for the voyages a star trek original animated and kelvin films podcast full honesty i did find that the scene was seemingly long when they were driving with him and, and scotty to get to the enterprise when they were in their little capsule i felt that that was a very long scene driving around the whole enterprise but Find yourself someone in life that looks at you the way Kirk looked at the Enterprise. I mean, that was a beautiful moment. And I absolutely adored when Spock came back onto the Enterprise. Just how everybody on the bridge, like Yuhura and Chekhov and everybody, they just kind of rallied around him. And it was a really warming moment just to see that original core group of people just celebrate him and happy to see him. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.